Hello, and welcome to the Canada's History Podcast. My name is Nell Ostrom, and I'm the Senior Editor of Canada's History Magazine. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Lausanne. Sarah is a university student who is passionate about local history in her hometown of Cornwall, Ontario. One of her projects involves the Cornwall House of Industry and Refuge. Can you tell me how you came to discover the, uh, the Cornwall House of Refuge? Well, this is actually a building I've seen my whole life because my mother worked there. It was turned into a nursing home in 1972. So growing up, you know, I'd go pick up my mom, and it's a building I've always seen. And I remember whenever I was younger, I asked her if she knew anything about the building, its history, like what was it used for, because it's really big. It's, it's huge, kind of up on a hill. And the only thing my mom could tell me was that it was a, an all-girls school in the 1950s. And doing my own research, I found out that she was right. But um, about, apart from that, she couldn't tell me anything more. So whenever I started volunteering for um, house, uh, sorry, the uh, Heritage Cornwall, it's like a small historical society in my town, um, I'd go in and volunteer in their Cornwall room, which is basically an archive room. And whenever I would get bored, I'd just kind of like look up my own stuff because no traffic was coming through the room to help them out. And then one day I just kind of said, oh, well, I'm going to look up the building because my mom couldn't tell me anything about it, so I'll, I'll learn its story. And I was completely fascinated to find out that it was a house of refuge. So basically, um, if there was someone needing shelter, they were living on the street, could have been an orphan child, could be an elderly person. It was basically just to get anyone living off the street in, into a home with a roof over their head. And the most fascinating part um, about that for me was um, if there was no relatives living to claim uh, bodies of people who were passing away in this facility, uh, the bodies would be buried on the property. So essentially, whenever I was visiting the fish pond out front or running through the, you know, the yard playing with butterflies or whatever I was doing to keep busy waiting for mom to be finished her shift, I was really running over an unmarked cemetery. And when you talk to citizens around town, most people don't know about this. And it's not just like that for Cornwall. There's other house of refuge facilities around Ontario and other parts of Canada. And it's the same thing. Most people don't know about them, and most people don't know that the ground is actually a cemetery. So when were these houses of refuge established? Canada actually placed the House of Refuge Act in 1890. Now, I understand you've done some research into the people who were actually uh, housed at the House of Refuge in, in Cornwall. Can you, can you tell me something about those people? A lot of the, the people that were living in the House of Refuge were just people who suffered, you know, at, at the hands of what the 1920s and 30s were really like. They suffered the hardships. They tried to have a business running, and a lot of the times the business would fail, and they would have no money left over, and they'd be sent to the House of Refuge as, you know, a last resort. There were children who were just left there because their mothers passed away, their fathers passed away, or they just didn't want them and they were just shoved there to be adopted. Um, I have a case where a lady was pregnant out of wedlock and she gave birth in the facility and that was the only baby ever to be born there. Um, and of course, when you have an amazing story like that, where he's the only child born in the facility, um, the page in the register was actually ripped. So I, I don't know his name, I just know it was a little baby boy and he actually ended up passing away 16 days after he was born there. So given um, the mother's circumstances and the time frame, this was in you know the 1920s, so he's probably one of the people that's buried on the property. Now you've mentioned that the people buried on the property uh, were, were placed in unmarked graves, and I gather that some of those graves have been moved. Um, 
So, but first of all, what was your reaction when you when you learned about this? I was actually shocked, um, and when I started doing more research into this cemetery ordeal, um, as you mentioned, some of them were disrupted and the graves were moved because on the left-hand side of the building, if you're facing it, on the left-hand side they added a street called Gretchen Court, and when they were laying the foundations down for some of these houses, they actually dug up these bodies, and it was to the point where they found 29 of them, and the gentleman that was working on uh, these houses actually sued the city and he won because they didn't properly close the cemetery. And whenever I was about seven or eight, so about 1997, they added an addition on the right-hand side of the building. And I remember, well, I, like, I can't really say I remember seeing them, but I remember hearing people talking about seeing, like, Adam's family, like, creepy coffins that they dug up from this addition. And it didn't really click in my mind because, like I said, I was about seven years old. But later on, I got thinking about it, and I actually asked some of the workers who remember seeing this, and they told me, like, more in detail how the, the people were basically stuffed in the coffins. They didn't spend too much money uh, on these people to bury them properly. So most of them were either in pauper's graves with no coffin. They were in a coffin that they couldn't even sit in properly. And when um, the cemetery laws kind of changed in the 1940s, saying you can't bury people on the property, they have to be in a cemetery, most of the time they would pay $1 for the plot and they would just be thrown kind of like off to the side in a... Um, kind of like a poor section of the cemetery. So I understand you're involved in a project to, to help remember some of these people who were buried in these unmarked graves. Can you tell me something about that? Well, I have kind of two things going on. One is not going to be for a while, and I'll talk about that one first. Um, so basically, I'm looking through all 906 inmates that walked through the doors of the House of Refuge. Um, we're fortunate enough to have the registers that survived the test of time. It's 102 years old. Um, some of the pages are ripped off, but for the most part, you can read all of the names of these people. So I've been researching them one by one just to find out if I can find where they're buried. And I have been able to trace that about at least 50 of them so far are buried on the property, but I've only researched about 220 of them so far because a lot of people to look through. Um, so one day I will eventually place a monument on the current property, uh, listing each and every name of the people that are buried there. I'm bound to miss some because they didn't keep too good records for these people, but I'm trying my best to, to go through and do as thorough a job as possible to commemorate all of their lives. And then um, the 29 bodies that were uncovered on the left-hand side of the property on the Gretchen Court, they were moved to a cemetery going towards Longsu, which is a tiny town just outside of Cornwall. So what I'm trying to do right now is raise money for these 29 people so that they can at least have a tombstone. Um, I'll never be able to tell you, you know, if there were 15 uh, females and the rest were male inmates or if there were children or they were just adults. But at least there can be a general statement, you know, saying, here lies the, the House of Refuge inmates that, you know, used to be buried on 11th Street but are now placed here. Mm, that's, an, that's a great project. Um, how much would you estimate it would cost? I talked to um, one of the, the gentlemen in town that works on making monuments, and he's literally just charging me, like, for the monument. I'm not paying for any uh, work, anything. Like, he, he's literally just doing this out of the goodness of his heart to just give me the tombstone. So um, to get the foundation laid and poured by the cemetery and the tombstone itself with the inscription is going to cost $5,000. But I've been doing kind of, like, walking tours around town. I've been doing lectures and all kinds of things just, just to get, you know, some, some money going for this monument because I wish I had $5,000 laying around. 
um, but so far it's collected $1,650.89. Well, so we're well on our way. Well, that's fantastic. So um, what other projects are you involved with as a, as a local historian? Um, well, uh, <laughs> how my whole story kind of started out, um, funny enough, I was 16 years old and like I said, I was volunteering for the Historical Society and I looked up, the, like I was just looking for one of my favorite houses that was on First Street. So I started researching the history of the house, when it was built, uh, who lived there, who rented it, owned it, and I knew all the names of the people that did. And then one day I decided, oh, well, you know, there's pictures in the back, the back uh, cabinet of these houses. I'm going to look for pictures of this house, too, to see if it changed at all. And I'm looking through all these pictures, and then at the bottom of one of the pictures I see the name Judge O'Reilly's Residence. And I'm staring at this picture going, well, I just researched the names of all the people that lived here, and I didn't mention this guy's name. So I looked more into it, having dates to actually run with. It gave me some, like, you know, easier way to look things up. And I found out that he actually dropped dead in 1929 uh, in our courthouse after serving for 29 years. So I figured a gentleman that served our community for that long should have some kind of a commemoration in the courthouse, and he, he died right in that, that room. And when I went there, there was absolutely no mention of him, not a plaque, not a small picture. There was literally nothing to even say that he existed and served as a judge for 29 years. So it became kind of my personal mission to, to fix that. And it took a long time for people to listen to me and take me seriously because I was 16, 17 whenever I was doing this. So this didn't happen until I was 21. Um, there was a retired policeman uh, who was actually researching one of the fallen police officers, the only one that was ever killed in duty uh, in Cornwall. So I kind of walked up to him and said, if you need any help researching, I'd love to help. I'm by no means a professional, but it's something I enjoy doing. So he agreed to let me help him, and I kind of did things here and there to help him get the ball rolling and to get uh, his ceremony uh, going. And then eventually I approached him with it saying, I have kind of a similar situation, except it isn't a police officer, it's a judge. And he kind of told me, like, these are the people you need to talk to. And he put in a good word for me saying, like, yeah, she's 21, but you can take her seriously. And it actually it actually became a reality. There was a ceremony for the judge that I... <laughs> you know, found whenever I was 16, and ever since then, I got the nickname Cornwall Little Historian, and I researched literally everything and anything possible about Cornwall. Wow, that's, that's a great story, Sarah. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Canada's History Podcast. My name is Nell Ostrom. I'm the senior editor of Canada's History Magazine. I've been speaking with Sarah Lazan of Cornwall, Ontario.